We think about fighting. Now, to be absolutely clear, right at the start, I'm not encouraging you to fight with one another. And I'm not encouraging you to fight with anybody else for that matter. Um, we read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just look with me at verse 12. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. So we're not talking about fighting one another. We're talking about fighting the good fight of the faith. And hopefully by the end we'll have an understanding about what that means. As, as we're working through these four words, um, I'm trying to give you a balanced view of what Christianity is. You might want to just go back a slide actually and take Andy by surprise there. So here's the four things we've been thinking about. We've emphasised first of all standing. This was all about the fact that we can only stand tall because God is kind to sinners like us. We don't stand before God in our own merit um, because we don't have any. We, we can only stand up before God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the work of Jesus, God rescues sinners. He brings us into his family. We don't deserve it. We can't pay for it. We can't earn it. But this idea of standing is all about what God does for us to enable us to stand tall. Um, and so the way you become a Christian, if you're not a Christian, is to come to God exactly as you are, turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, and then you'll be able to stand. And you'll have started the Christian life. Walking was slightly different. This is all about the fact that we have not just a new identity, but a new relationship. Once we become a Christian, we can walk through life with God. And he's faithful to us. He's faithful to his people through all the ups and downs of life. Hard days, good days. We have a friendship with God. We're not God's enemies anymore. Um, but in close and intimate friendship and secure relationship with God. That's walking. So that all sounds great so far. That's two out of four. And we come to number three today. It all sounds great so far, but it is also true that we are, in fact, in a battle. We're, we're called to stand in God's grace and to walk with him in a newness of life. But the truth is that many things conspire against us. Um, so, I want to just think by way of introduction of a couple of things. Let me just launch off. So we'll flick on a couple of slides. Um, so the, the first thing I want to say is really something about evil. Evil is not a simplistic thing. Many people, I've said this to you many times, many people have the idea that Christians are a bit stupid and a bit gullible and a bit black and white and a bit simple. The Christian worldview, as described in the Bible, is the most nuanced and complex worldview of all worldviews. And the truth is that evil is not a simplistic thing. It is much more complicated than we think it is. In years gone by, our Christian forefathers used to say that Christians have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world around us 
first of all, is that when, when they said that, they didn't just mean planet Earth. They, they mean the world as a, as a system, I suppose. The world doesn't love God. This world will not help you to love God. The systems and values and ideals of this world are not the same as God's ideals. So the world is, is like an enemy, really, to a Christian. As you live and breathe the cultures of this world, wherever you live on planet Earth, you will find that it will not help you to pursue godliness. It will drag you away from God. So the world, in a sense, is an enemy. Many great things go on in the world, but in spiritual terms, the world is an enemy. The flesh is a way of describing our sinful, selfish natures. And the truth is, although we have a new life in Christ, our old habits die hard. And anyone who's a Christian will tell you this. Although we have a new life in Christ, there is conflict inside of us. We have been forgiven, yes. We've been made right with God, yes. But our old nature is still constantly trying to reassert itself and dominate us. So we have a conflict inside of us. And we have spiritual enemies too. The devil, I don't want to dwell on, on this today, but the devil is not a cartoon character who wears a red suit and has a pitchfork and a spiky tail and horns. There are spiritual forces of evil that we cannot see, but we see the effects of them everywhere. Just read the newspaper tomorrow morning and you will see the effects of spiritual warfare. That's how the Bible describes evil. It's not simple, it's complex. It is inside of us, it is all around us, it's even above us. There's pressure outside of us, there's conflict inside of us. So our next picture, standing, walking, fighting. It isn't fighting with each other, that would be wrong. I hope you understand that. It isn't fighting to get salvation from God because salvation itself is a gift from God. But there is a fight involved in living as a Christian for real in this world. The second thing I want to say by way of interruption is that Christianity is not a nice fairy tale either. Christianity is not a form of escapism. Many people have this idea that Christianity is escapism. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and he will take you. It'll be a bed of roses. The reality is, for many people, when they become a Christian, that's when their problems start. <laughs> Being a Christian is not a form of escapism. We might come back to that. I'm sure this is a note that we need to hear today. Christianity involves application, it involves hard work, it involves sweat and effort. So, let, let me say this right at the beginning. You, you will get nowhere in your life with God unless you are serious and intentional and determined. Christianity is not a game. No one in history has ever had their life changed as if by magic, by sitting on their bum, doing nothing. That is not grace, it's laziness. It brings no glory to God to portray him 
as a sort of kindly granddad in the sky who picks up all the pieces we drop with a rueful smile and a never mind. No, you will reap what you sow. God cannot be mocked that way. The note of the Bible from beginning to end is to urge you to make every effort to strive, to pursue, yes, even to fight. To grab eternal life with both hands and hang on to it for dear life. You can't pretend to do it. You can't get away with just watching other people do it. You need to fight the good fight of the faith. Is that, is that clear enough? I think I just made that point, didn't I? Fight. Fight. Standing, yes. Walking, yes. Fighting, yes. This is a note, I think, that we need to hear. So, uh, that's by way of introduction. I want to do two things with this Bible passage that Andrew read to us. This is a big challenge. First, I only want to do two things, though. First of all, I want to understand this phrase. What does Paul mean when he says, fight the good fight of the faith? So that's number one, okay? It's good for us to understand what the words actually mean. But then, we've got the other challenge of understanding why does Paul say that here, in this particular place, to this particular person, Timothy. So we're going to look at the sentence first, and then we'll look at the context. So we'll look at what, what it means, and then we'll look at why he says it, okay? Does that make sense? It's good when the preacher only has two points. When he's got like a million sub-points under each one, it's a bit harder. But, um, so, what, what does this phrase mean, fighting a good fight? Well, first of all, what a sporting weekend this has been. If you like sport, this, is a, this has been like heaven this weekend. If you don't like sport, just bear with me for a minute, because hopefully I will kind of enthuse you as well. We have the World Cup on at the moment. Unfortunately, England didn't do too well. The Tour de France, starting in Yorkshire. What's that all about? The Grand Depart. I can't say it in a French accent. And coming to Sheffield almost as we speak. Um, I think it'll have just finished about half full, won't it? Um, the Wimbledon finals. Shame about Andy Murray getting beaten. Seems to be off it this year, doesn't he? But um, the Wimbledon final this afternoon, Djokovic and Federer. Lewis Hamilton winning the British Grand Prix today. And there's all sorts of other sports as well going on this weekend. The whole world is watching sport this weekend. Why? Why? Why does sport grip people? All of these fine human specimens operating at the very limit of their potential. The preparation they go through, the training they do, the sacrifice and effort they put in, the single-minded determination and focus. In many aspects, it was no different in Paul, who's writing these words, and Timothy, who's receiving these words. It's no different now than it was in their days. The New Testament was written at a very interesting point in history. You, you'll know, first century, the Roman Empire conquered with military power. But in a way, the Greek Empire 
conquered culturally. So even though the Romans were the tough fighters, it was Greek culture that sort of affected the way people lived. And one of the big things in Greek culture, as you will know, was their interest in sporting prowess. Major cities would often have great games, festivals, and the watching public would come and be enthralled by displays of human endeavor. It might be wrestling, it might be running, it might be chariot racing, it might be throwing, jumping. Whatever it was, the idea was of coming together to celebrate human competition and striving for excellence. This is where our Olympics go back to, isn't it? Greek culture. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, when Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, he's writing this in the first century in Greek. And literally, the, the word that's translated in English fight is the word that we get the word agonize from. So what Paul actually says here is agonize the good agony. Agonize the good agony of the faith. So for a Greek person like Paul, the word agonize meant originally to engage in conflict. And over the years, it came to mean to compete in the games. So the, the English word fight here, and I've pictured it with a guy with boxing gloves on here, it's not like fully plumbing the depths of the word. It, it really, we could translate Paul's words as compete in the good competition. Does that make sense? He's looking at the Christian life and saying, Timothy, I want you to be like an Olympian. That, that's, that's what he's saying. Fight for it. Strive for it. Compete for it. See these guys? Sir Chris Hoy, Jessica Ennis, Usain Bolt, Lewis Hamilton, if ever it is, be like that in your Christian life. There's something else here, though, I think. Uh, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, but he does say fight the good fight of the faith. Now, the Greeks, as I think you'll also know, had, a very, had very strong opinions on beauty as well. We call it aesthetic, don't we? The Greeks were very into that. What, 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 what was it that made a thing beautiful to look at? Um, so the, the Greeks were very into that as well. Strong opinions on aesthetics. How things look was very important to them. But I think we have this as well, don't we? When we think about sport even. We love the commitment and the blood and thunder. But often what we're longing for is the beauty of flair. Football fans, you'll, you'll hear football fans complaining when their team wins ugly. Well, we won 1 0, but it was really rubbish. It was boring. That we, we won ugly. We, you know, it's nice to have the three points, but what we want to see is Brazilian flair. Beauty. Elegance. I was watching Federer playing tennis the other day at Wimbledon, and the commentators were talking about his grace and elegance. And describing him like a, almost like the ballet in poetic terms. I mean, he looked quite sweaty to me, and he's got you know big muscles, and he was hitting the ball hard. But the way they were talking about him, you would have thought he was a ballet dancer. You know, he's, he's, he's aesthetically beautiful. When you see an amazing goal in the World Cup, 
and the ball smashes into the top corner. You go, wow, look at that. And people talk about it at work the next day, don't they? Why is that? Because it's not just the competition. It is the beauty of just being excellent or skillful. That some of you, forgive me for this, but some of you will know there's a jokey phrase that has come into our modern language from Sky Sports in the last few years. Sometimes you hear people talk about sporting technique as techers. So you'll see someone doing kick-ups and then the commentator go, oh, unbelievable techers. It's te technique, sporting technique. What is interesting here in this passage is that there are different words in the Greek for the word good. We just have one in English. It's good. It's good. It's a great word. It's a good word. Good. But in Greek, they have different words for the word good. Something can be good in itself, intrinsically good. Something can be good to look at. That's a different word. Something could be good morally. That's a different word. What word do you think Paul would use here for the good fight? Fight, the good fight of the faith. Well, he chooses a word that essentially means that it's good to look at. He chooses an aesthetic word to describe this fight. I find that interesting. This, he seems to be saying that this fight is a beautiful thing to behold. It takes skill technique. Living a Christian life is aesthetically pleasing. Imagine Messi hitting the top corner with a free kick. That's the kind of good that Paul's talking about here. Compete in the good competition. If Paul were writing to Timothy today, he might say, look at those players in the World Cup. Look at Chris Froome, bursting his lungs to go up that hill in the Tour de France. Look at Novak Djokovic and his passion and focus. Timothy lived the Christian life like that. Fight the good fight of faith. Show the world your unbelievable techers. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. It's not the only place that Paul speaks like this. Um, keep your finger in that page and just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, this is on page 1150. 1150. I sometimes I wonder whether Paul might have been an athlete when he was younger because he does talk about sport a lot. You don't really know, but he, he, he seems to kind of have an interest. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and towards the end of the chapter, verse 24 at the bottom of the page there, Paul says to this, this is another church in Corinth, do you not know that in a race all the runners won, run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Passionate words, those, aren't they? He's referring to the same 
games. So although I've pictured this idea of a boxer here, the idea of fighting is not confined to conflict. It's really about athletic striving. Is that how you would describe your Christian life? Agonizing the good agony. Competing in the good competition. Fighting the good fight. Many people think that Christianity, as we've said, is like a kind of escapism from real life. Come to Jesus and he'll give you some kind of drugs so that you don't notice how difficult and painful life is. Christianity isn't hiding. Christianity is facing life, facing reality, with the power and goodness of Jesus Christ in your heart. At times it will mean stress, tears, hard work and sacrifice. And Paul here is emphasising a mindset of determination. This is a life that strains to use every ounce of energy to win. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Get that? that? That's the sentence then. That, 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 that's what Paul means. I, I, I hope that kind of bursts into life for you. Paul's being passionate here. So, next. And this is my last point, actually. It's quite a long one. So, next. What about the context? What stirs him here? to use this kind of imagery. I don't like just looking at a verse, even though this is a great verse, and taking it out of context. The challenge then is that we have to do like a talk on the whole of 1 Timothy, and we'll be here to like for three weeks. So I, I've really had to work hard this week to try and distill what this is about. So first of all, let me use this heading, setting the agenda, or setting an agenda. This part of the Bible here is a letter Paul is an older Christian man, an older Christian leader, and he's writing to Timothy, who is much younger. And he's left Timothy looking after a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. It was a very important church, this one, in the first century. And Paul's elsewhere, and he leaves Timothy in Ephesus, as the kind of minister of this little church in Ephesus. So this letter, six chapters, is to a Christian leader telling him how to run his church. That's basically what it's about. So Paul is here setting an agenda, not just for Timothy, but for the church as a whole. And there are a lot of problems in this church. I don't know if you realize that. Churches are not perfect you find a perfect church let me know um, don't join it because then it won't be churches have all kinds of problems because this is the real world um, and this church had a lot of problems and it's great that this is in the bible it, in some ways it should encourage us just go back to, to the first part of this letter and let's um, try and have a look at some of the problems so Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3. 
As I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you, you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. What a start to a letter. Timothy, your job, mate, is to stay in Ephesus and sort this mess out. Let me just summarise what that mess was. Three words that hopefully will pop on the on the street this church the people were wrong they were pointless and they were proud uh, that that's a, that, that's my very short summary of the Ephesian church they were wrong Paul says to Timothy tell the men who are standing up and teaching rubbish to shut it because they're wrong and then he says they 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 love sitting about having a coffee talking about old wives tales it's pointless it doesn't do anyone any good in fact they end up getting hot under the collar they're talking about stuff that isn't even important. It's a waste of time. And more than that, they're arrogant. What a, what a, I mean, what a church. <laughs> they were wrong, they were pointless, and they were arrogant. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, you've won the jackpot, mate. I want you to stay in Ephesus because it's your job to sort out this mess. Thanks, Paul. Could I not go to a better church? The, uh, these three things here are everywhere though, aren't they? And if, if I'm honest, these are three things that I feel quite frightened about. I, I don't want my life to be wrong and to miss the whole point of it. I don't want to get to the end of my life and think that I had my ladder up against the wrong wall. Ooh. Neither do I want my life to be pointless and a waste of time just going around in circles and I certainly don't want to be arrogant and so full of me that I actually end up both wrong and pointless <laughs> these things affect all of us what is Paul going to tell Timothy to do with all that this is a church and it's a mess Timothy your job is to show these people the gospel of Jesus Christ God's Son, our Saviour. That is what they need. They don't need strategy. They don't need clever, cute talk. What they need is the Gospel. The good news of Jesus. Look in chapter 1 at what Paul calls that. At the end of um, verse 10, he says, he talks about sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious Gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Sound doctrine. That word sound, we say that in our modern culture, don't we? Oh yeah, it's sound. Sound. What, what that word really means is wholesome, healthy, life-giving. It's sound. It's not got like a maggot in it. It's, it's, it's like you bite into it and there's a maggot in there. It's sound means it's healthy. That's the gospel. It's healthy. It's life-giving. 
And why is that the answer? Because in the face of them being wrong, the gospel is true. In the face of them being pointless, the gospel is fruitful. And it changes lives. And in the face of their pride and arrogance, the gospel is what humbles them and unites them so that they're not selfish and me-centered, but they're now living servant-hearted lives, united together in Christ. The thing that will change the church in Ephesus is Timothy's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has power. So that is Timothy's mission, should he choose to accept it. He's going to face some opposition. There is some evidence that people in this church thought he was way too young. There's probably people in this church who enjoy the power they have and they won't like it when he confronts them. Do you know what I think actually happened here? I think Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and, and asked him to read it out to the whole church as a kind of open letter. Can you imagine that? So Timothy stands up on Sunday and says, hey, in the post this week I got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Let me open it and read it to you all. And then he reads and says, Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can tell those men who are teaching false doctrines to shut up. And those people would be listening to him reading this letter out. It's, that would be a masterstroke, wouldn't it? It kind of it enhances his own leadership while at the same time speaking to the congregation. I wonder whether that's what happened. Well, let's uh, move on. So th this letter is about setting an agenda. We're going to get back to fighting in a little bit. We haven't forgotten that. But this is about setting an agenda. My second heading is an odd one. I've, I've entitled this second heading, Managing the Chickens. We, we've got some chickens at home. And, uh, and they're fascinating. Uh, I think our chickens are like a little model of the church in Ephesus that Timothy is leading. Why do I say that? Well, if you sit in our conservatory there and you watch the chickens, you'll see them strutting around the garden. There's only four of them. We haven't got many. I don't want to make it sound like a chicken farm. But chickens strut. They fight to establish. We even call it the pecking order, don't we? They, they peck one another until they know who's in charge. And then, I think Mildred is, is the one who's in charge in our chickens. Sorry, I don't trust Mildred. Is that right, Mildred? Is it Mildred? Mildred? She's the feisty one. Don't argue with Mildred. She'll peck you. They make a lot of noise and mess. They do a lot of walking around in circles. But when you look at them, they obviously think they rule the world, let alone our garden. They walk around as though they own the place. They haven't even got a mortgage. They just kind of walk around, you know, this is my house, this is my garden. It's the kind of pride and arrogance of those chickens. Listen, Paul is sending Timothy here into the chicken coop. Because people are like this. They get things wrong. They have pointless, meaningless arguments and they're constantly strutting around trying to show their credentials. Look at me. Um, just uh, let's go back and read the first part of the bit that Andrew read to us from chapter 6. 
And think, think chicken feet. Verse 7. No, sorry. Verse, my eyes are getting terrible. Verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. So he's returning to his theme. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Say what you mean, Paul. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot of strutting going on here in this church. This is a church, and it's like a chicken coop. Some of it is to do with money. This is a whole different talk, this. And I, I've struggled this week with this because I was, I thought there's a lot here about money. We're going to have to touch on it, but we haven't got time to, to do it. So I, I hope I do it justice. When, when you mix religion and money, it is a recipe for disaster. And, and the reason it's a recipe for disaster is because these things are all about pecking orders. There's a, this verse here is misquoted. A lot of people say money is the root of all evil, don't they? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible never ever says that money in itself is a bad thing. What the verse actually says is the love of money is the root of all evil. And I think the Bible would divide the world into two kinds of people, those who are rich and those who want to be rich. And, and the love of money is a, is a problem for both those groups in different ways. Those who do have money often become arrogant and superior. Just look at verse 17. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So those who do have money, Paul doesn't say give it all away as if it's a bad thing. What he says is, if you're rich, don't become arrogant and superior. But on the other hand, those who don't have money, their issue is that they're looking at those who do have money, and these things are all relative, but they're looking at people who don't have money and thinking, my life is all right for so-and-so. Wish I had their money. Wonder if my lottery ticket will come in this week. It's miserable, my life. So on the one, these people get arrogant, these people get jealous and envious. And Paul says it here. Um, where is it? Verse 9. People who want to get rich, so he's talking there about people who are not rich, but they want to be rich, will fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. Whether we are rich or poor, the issue is really how we use or desire money to achieve status. Pecking order. 
and it will either make us bitter or proud. The love of money will blind you to who you really are. Often we're using material things to mask our inadequacies and restlessness. And in order to forget who we really are, when we have money, we think we're in control. We think we're secure. Just, I wasn't going to do this, but just look back at chapter 2 and verse 9. Um, just over the page. It's a different, completely different part of the letter, but I'm just giving you a clue as to what kind of a chicken coop this was. He, he says, um, well, verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Stop falling out and pray. That's what he says to the men. But then he says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Ouch. So he says, men, stop falling out. Women, stop showing off. That, that's really what he says. Pecking order. It's all about status. Women coming to church with their fur coats and their big earrings. It, 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 what they're doing is trying to establish credentials. It's the strutting. It's the, it's the chicken coop. Look at me. I'm better than you. That shouldn't be in a church. The men are falling out. The women are showing off. Timothy, it's the chicken coop, mate. And the interesting thing is that they can't pray to God properly because they're so busy falling out with one another. It is like a chicken coop. Squawk, squawk. They're wrong, they're pointless, and they're proud. And do you know what the saddest thing is? Most of the time we don't even know we're doing this, do we? And we genuinely think the problem is everybody else is. It's not me. So, Paul writes to Timothy to set the agenda. He's, he's really sending him into the chicken coop to manage the chickens who are strutting about. The third heading, this is the last one, is he gives Timothy a new purpose. This is a new life. And just look now at verse 11. Does all this hang together? There's a great big but there. I've got a big boss. I'm sorry, I've got to stop saying that. But with one T, not with two T's. I get told off by my kids for saying that. There's a big but there. It is a big but. But you, you, Timothy, Timothy, my dear, dear son in the faith, you, man of God, doesn't have to be like this. This is the note of contrast, isn't it? This is what's going on. But you, Timothy, you, you don't have to be like that. You have a new life. You have a new purpose. You have a new motivation. Paul urges Timothy to do four things here. And, and we're just going to pick on these four things and then we're done. He urges him to flee. He, he, he urges him to chase, pursue, he urges them to fight and he urges them to grab. Okay? Flee, 
chased, fight and grab. Notice how energetic, virile and manly those words are. This is not for... Oh man, I don't want to be... I, don't, I, sh I shouldn't be sexist. Um, oh, you know that York advert where it says it's not for girls. They should make one about Chris Guy for that, you know. But it is for girls, so it doesn't make sense, that does it? But it, th these are manly words, aren't they? Uh, flee, chase, fight, grab. He's, he's trying to inspire Timothy to do things. The doing words. In the light of all of this, Timothy, think of those games. Think of the Olympics. Think of your greatest sporting hero, Timothy. And live like that in the chicken coop. The first two seem like opposites, don't they? How can you flee something and pursue something at the same time? Has Paul lost his mind? He says, flee from all this and pursue this. He doesn't know what he's coming on balance. What am I meant to be doing? Running that way? Running that way? Listen, we have to realise that sometimes in the Christian life, running away is the best option. We're always taught, aren't we, that big boys don't run away. It's weak to run away. But when it comes to sin, there are times when we do need to flee. The word flee, I mean, he doesn't even say run away. He says flee, flee. In other words, Paul's saying these things are like deadly poison. They're like rabid dogs. They're like fire-breathing dragons. There is no credit for you, Timothy, in hanging around to fight something that you cannot win. So put your sprinting shoes on and show sin your coattails. Flee. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph and his technical and amazing green coat? And he worked in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife came to him on a number of occasions and said to him, Joseph, come to bed with me. And he didn't hang around and sit on the end of a bed and go, well, you know, that's a nice suggestion, but I'm not really wanting to do that. Let's have a little chat about it. I don't want to damage your self-esteem. No. He put his shoes on and he ran. He ran so quick that he left his coat behind and Potiphar's wife was so cross with him because she didn't get her own way that when her husband came, she said, look what Joseph left in my room, his coat. And he got thrown into jail unjustly, even though he'd run. Do you know, sometimes in our Christian lives, often instead of running, what we're actually doing is dancing around on the edge of the things that we know are wrong. We think we're in control. I can stop this anytime I want. I've got it covered. Some of you, no doubt, will be dabbling around the edge of things you know to be wrong. Curiosity. I'll just have a little look. It's not a big deal. I can stop when I want. Maybe for you, the truth is in private, I don't, I don't know. 
not picking on anyone. I'm just... Maybe the truth for you in private is you drink too much. You watch things you shouldn't watch. You go to places you shouldn't go to. And instead of fleeing sin, you're dabbling in it. Listen, if you were in a sport, you wouldn't win anything living like that. You would come bottom of the league living like that. That's Timothy's, that's Paul's point, isn't it? Unless you are ruthless, you will go round in circles and in the end, you will finish bottom. There are no prizes for dabbling. Paul says to Timothy here, you, man of God, stop messing about and flee. Do you know what's wrong with many people's Christian lives? Instead of running from sin and pursuing righteousness, they pursue sin and run away from righteousness. It's the opposite way around for many Christians. I'm going to dabble in this and I'm going to leave that. It's the wrong way around. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, you, man of God, flee from all of this strutting, sinful, argumentative, prideful behavior. Flee, run away from it. There's a positive though. Pursue, chase. This is a good thing about the Bible. The Bible is never negative in this sense. When the Bible says, don't do this, it always, in addition, says, instead, do this, because it will do you good. The Bible is not trying to kill your joy. The Bible is trying to help you to be healthy. Now, just very quickly, there are six words here that Paul uses when he says chase, pursue. Six words in three pairs. Righteousness and godliness. Faith and love, endurance and gentleness. Righteousness, I think here, means your behaviour in relation to other people. So when he says righteous, he means do right by other people. And when he pairs that with godliness, he, so righteousness is about how you behave to others. Godliness is about your relationship with God. So he says, flee these things and pursue being right with God and right with other people as far as you can. I think the second pair confirms that because he says pursue uh, faith and love. I think faith is Godward. Trust God. Love other people. It's the same idea but said a different way. Godliness, righteousness. Faith, love. Flee these things pursue these things the last pair though are quite interesting um, endurance and gentleness I, I think that when things are hard for us in life one of two things can often happen we'll, when things are hard we either go oh give up I've had enough I can't do it anymore or we say it's not fair. And we get angry, mardy, grumpy. When things are hard, they're the two extremes that we often veer towards. We either give up or we get grumpy. I think this is an issue for men, particularly. 
men, when things are hard, either just disappear and hide in their shed, or if they've got a different personality, temperament, they might become abusive. Two extremes. What is wonderful here is that in Christ, we can avoid both of those extremes. In Christ, we can keep going and not give up, and we can be gentle in the face of provocation instead of expressing bitterness and frustration. So Paul says here, trust God, love other people, and don't throw the towel in. Be gentle. Later on, just out of interest, Paul reminds Timothy about Jesus. He made his good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. Verse 13. So imagine Jesus. Things went pretty bad for him, didn't they? He's had nothing to eat all night. His back's been whipped to a pulp. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They plucked the hairs, hairs out of his beard. They slapped him. They blindfolded him, hit him with sticks. And as he's standing before Pontius Pilate, did he give up? Or did he become grumpy? No, he made the good confession. Endurance and gentleness. Beautiful. Jesus, the original courageous hero. He wasn't wrong or pointless or proud. He loved God. He loved people. He didn't give up, but he endured. And he didn't get bitter, but was gentle. Anyway, we haven't got time. Fight was the third thing we've dealt with, so some of that. He sums it all up by saying, fight the good fight of faith. Agonize the good agony. Compete in the good competition. You won't fight if you don't realize you've got an enemy. You won't fight if you just want a life that's easy. You won't fight if you don't think it's worth fighting. So Paul comes to his last challenge. Grab. Verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life. Grab hold of eternal life. This is what God calls you to. So grab hold of it with both hands. There's an American uh, writer and preacher called R. Kent Hughes and he's written a commentary on this uh, letter. And in it, he tells the story, brilliant story, of a man who shot down an eagle. Might talk about the rights and wrongs of that if you're anti-hunting, but he, 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 he shot down an eagle. When he went to find the eagle and he examined it, he found, amazingly, the dried-out skull of a weasel with its jaw clamped around the eagle's neck. So what must have happened was that the eagle at some point had attacked the weasel and the weasel had turned around and bit onto the bird's neck so hard and stayed there refusing to let go. And as the eagle takes off and flies around, eventually the weasel dies. The, the, weasel, the, the weasel sort of decomposes, it flesh drops off and the skull, the dried skull of the weasel is still clamped onto the eagle's neck when this guy had shot the eagle down and found the eagle. Amazing. R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on this very verse, just so. We are to grab onto the eternal life that is already ours and ride it 
for all it's worth. Through the ups and downs of following Christ, eternal life, the knowledge of God the Father and Christ his Son, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of sins forgiven, the peace of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, the joy of service, the love of God. These are the things we must grab onto and joyously hold until we arrive in heaven. Does that sum up your Christian life? Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So, we've seen that Christian people can stand up tall because they have a new identity. They can walk with God because they have a new relationship. And now, we can see that it's possible to fight with Christ's vigour and energy and purpose. Listen, if you are not a Christian yet, why not? Will you, even, even now, this afternoon, will you turn around and come and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and receive his Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out? And if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian this afternoon, will you heed Paul's wisdom here to Timothy? Will you flee sin, chase holiness, fight the good fight of the faith, and grab hold with all your strength of the eternal life that God himself has called you to?